previously on the Martha Mindset. When Diwali was coming up, I think some of us were discussing it and one older English gentleman, he sort of went, yeah. Diwali, is that your tribe? <laughs> and I just thought, oh, that's, where do I even start with that? That's just all sorts of wrong. Hi everyone, this is Martha and you're listening to episode three of the Martha Mindset. Thanks to everyone who listened to episode two. I hope you enjoyed it and found some of the discussion useful. In episode two, I asked you to share your experiences of being British Asian and trying to fit in at work. Natalie Cheng has got in touch with me. She is a civil engineer from London. Natalie is British Asian and has a Chinese heritage. She said, with a Chinese heritage and a Chinese face, people are quick to make assumptions. I am proud to be Chinese, but do not identify with China as I've never been there and have no family there. Even among other British-born Chinese individuals, I feel out of place as my parents are not from the same country as many of theirs. I find myself acting extra English when I'm meeting a new mixed group of people to establish my identity more accurately. By acting extra English, I counteract my Chinese appearance and land somewhere in the middle which is how I actually identify. This makes it easier for me to build relationships, both professional and social, and act like myself later. This ultimately benefits me, but I wish I could act like myself from the start. Thank you also to Sonia Barlow, who has got in touch with me. Sonia is British Asian with a Pakistani heritage and she works in the tech sector. She told me that at work, she feels like a lot of people have made fun of her English accent. She feels that she's been paid less than her white colleagues, She also said, quite interestingly, that she's been misinterpreted as the note taker, even though she was leading the meeting. Thank you very much, Sonia, for getting in touch. I think Sonia's examples go to show that there are still lots and lots of problems around the ethnicity pay gap. And I think this all really reiterates that we're still facing discrimination in the workplace. I know it's not easy facing situations such as these, and we can only hope that over time, things will improve for us. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing beauty standards. Now I know that no matter what your background is or what your cultural heritage is, I think everyone has struggled with beauty standards at some point in their lives. The pressure to meet beauty standards within the Asian culture is always exceptionally high. I think that as British Asians, our identities are formed massively by the beauty standards that are set way before we were even born and they can really impact us as we're growing up and that applies to anyone of any culture. To kick things off, I met with Marie earlier this week. Marie and I went to university together and she had a lot to say about beauty standards in her culture. We both discussed how beauty standards and certain ideologies around beauty have impacted us as we grew up and how these beauty standards have continued to affect us even today. So I'm Marie and I'm 25 years old and I've gone back to university and I'm doing a master's in creative writing. I identify as Egyptian Sunnis, um, but I also identify as British and a Coptic Orthodox. I think beauty is such a massive concept um, in terms of appearance, in terms of inner beauty. I think there are wide variations. Mm-hmm. Um, I know certainly back home, certain things are seen as beautiful, certain traits are seen as beautiful. Mm-hmm. So for example, lighter skin, yeah. long, straightened hair, yeah. um, certain body types, for example, mm-hmm. like the hourglass figure. Yeah. Um, and if you kind of don't fit into one of those categories or you kind of different to that, then you do get quite a lot of criticism Mm -hmm. um I don't think people intentionally mean it in a bad way but it does tend to have Mm 
quite a big effect on the person experiencing but I'm sure we'll go into that later. I think I could probably agree with that especially when you say that people criticize they might not have bad intentions but for the person who's on the receiving end of it it can be quite difficult to digest and I think the reason why people are so quick to say to someone oh you've gained a few extra pounds there and you're looking really big maybe you should think about going on a diet think the reason why people have that kind of outspoken attitude is because weight or issues around body image aren't really considered a taboo so can you share what is seen as negative in your culture sure so i think hair is a massive deal um if you have curly hair or if you have frizzy hair then you are advised to straighten it Mm -hmm. i know certainly growing up i was pressured to straighten my hair and I naturally do have very curly very frizzy hair Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) you can tell now by looking at it (laughs) I have a distinct memory of going to Egypt when I was about 12 years old and I think it was for a Christmas event or something and I went into the hairdressers and the way they straighten hair is through an open flame like tongues on an open flame wait what yeah They literally have metal tongues on an open flame and they use that to straighten your hair. Can't you like die or something? Yeah, (laughs) I was absolutely terrified. The flame was only a few inches from me. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna die. That's actually a little bit crazy. Yeah. That's, That's quite scary. Another aspect of beauty is this idea of being hairless. Women are pressurized quite a lot to shave or get rid of their hair. Mm -hmm. Egyptians have this kind of paste. Yeah. I'd call it a paste. It's okay. like a sugar sugar thing, kind of like water, uh, sugar, and a bit of lemon juice. And it kind of forms this little malleable mound, basically. Wow. Um, and they use that to strip the hair off, which is very painful. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had metal tongs with fire. Yeah. And now we've had a paste that probably takes all your hair off in one go and probably leaves you in a lot of pain very very painful what way more painful than shaving um my mum tried to do it once do not recommend wow (laughs) (laughs) but that's another aspect of being seen as beautiful is getting rid of your hair um even though it's a very natural thing Mm -hmm. um threading is quite a massive one as Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. you know women are pressurized to take care of their eyebrows and thread their face Yeah, so I was quite young when I started threading my eyebrows and even to this day, I don't know why I started doing it. It was just something that everyone around me was doing and I guess to try and fit in, I thought I should probably get onto that. And so I was like, I was quite young. I was like, I think I must have been like 14 or 15. And then after that, it was like, right, I need to get rid of my upper lip hair as well because that seems to be kind of standing out on my face. And so I would get rid of that. I actually love my hair. Do you love your hair? Yes, I mean, I've got them on my head. I'm not going to get rid of it. Um, Trying to remove it does really hurt. But I think people do it for approval. You know, we all want to fit in. We all want to feel accepted. And if you don't remove your hair, that's another aspect of you that that doesn't fit in and stands out. I'm quite proud of myself, I have to say. Um, I go swimming quite a lot at my local leisure centre. And I'll be 100% honest with everyone right now. I do not remove my hair. There is hair on my legs, there is hair on my arms, there is hair 
in my armpits. Uh, it's everywhere and I just don't get rid of it. And that's because I just feel I just can't be bothered. I honestly can't be bothered. And I also feel like when you get to the pool, nobody really cares that much. And, you know, there's not someone out there with like a magnifying glass looking at your hair follicles. No one really cares that much. It's not that deep, people. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite confident in that aspect. But obviously there are times where I feel like I do conform to pressure. Um, I do conform to this idea that, you know, being hairless is attractive. So, you know, if I'm going to a wedding, for example, and I need to wear a dress, I do think, oh God, if my legs aren't going to be exposed, I should probably get rid of that hair. But sometimes on some occasions, I just don't care that much. Um, and I really hold on to that part of me that doesn't care that much. And that's the part of me that I'm most proud of, because I think somewhere we do all have it within us to just love ourselves a little bit more and take care of ourselves in that way. Not everything is about external appearances. I think it's far more important that you're a nice person overall rather than just thinking constantly about what your exterior is like and I think we should like you said we should embrace ourselves a little bit more I love that you can go to the swimming pool and not shave <laughs> that takes a lot of bravery and I wish I could be at that level but I'm working on it I promise it, to be honest it's a complete choice if you want to remove your hair or if you don't want to remove your hair but ultimately you have to be happy with that de decision and if it's costing you a lot of time and it's making you miserable and you know, it's it's just not worth it. Personally, I do it sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, I do feel the pressure. Yeah. I succumb to the pressure. Yeah. It's, it's very individual. And some of us want to do it and some of us don't. And mm -hmm. either way, that's okay. I think being seen as a larger woman is unattractive for, in the eyes of many. Um, I mean, I can only talk from my experience. Mm -hmm. But growing up, I would constantly be fat shamed. Um, and I was bullied, not only from the community, but from outside. So I've had people on the bus come up to me from an Arabic background and go, uh -huh. oh, you know, you've got a really pretty face, but you'd be even more beautiful if you lost weight. Um, or they'd like, for example, in church, um, a woman came up to my mum and she was like, oh, um, your daughter needs to walk more to lose weight. Um, and from a cultural perspective, I don't think they realise how young we internalize these things absolutely and how much it affects us growing up and how it affects our confidence when you when you have grown up in a bigger body you're almost seen as less able less capable of doing things um you're seen as not following a healthy lifestyle um and i think that is complete rubbish i mean you know i've gone through different phases throughout my life i've i've done olympic weightlifting at university i've done crazy things like I deadlifted 113 kilos and I squatted 130 that's amazing <laughs> but most people looking at my body wouldn't see that and I think again with social media there is an awareness there with the body positive community but I think there is a lot of work a lot of work to be done in terms of fitness and seeing different body types and how different body types move and what they're wearing I think I can definitely agree with you Marie on issues around weight I think when I was a little bit younger, I used to get a lot of comments thrown at me about my weight. So when I was at university, um, as you might know, sometimes you start to stress eat because you've got exams, you've got lots of coursework, and I used to stress eat a lot. And obviously, I didn't realize at the time that it was adding pounds to my body. But I remember when I went back home to India for a holiday, I had a lot of family members say to me, oh, you're so pretty and you're so beautiful, but you would look so much better if you lost weight around your hips. 
your back or your bum and I would be like I can't lose it I actually can't lose it and also who are you to say that to me and I used to get really really frustrated by these comments and slowly the build-up of these comments did start to impact me quite a bit um, and I think I did start to feel quite paranoid about my body so I'd look in the mirror I wouldn't really like what I saw you go into a bit of a spiral of always looking at yourself in the mirror and checking how you look in a certain outfit or feeling like you're not pretty enough or you're not good enough and I think those kind of comments are so, so damaging, especially the younger you are. It can really impact your self-esteem and it can knock your confidence. And I think so many people around us just don't realise that when they say these comments, they are making us, like you said, they're making us internalise quite damaging perceptions of body image. And I feel like we're pushed to attain this beauty ideal that's always out of reach. And even if we achieved it, we'll never really quite be perfect because we'll always lack in some other department. Definitely. I think adverts in general, whether you're on the tube or, you know, you're scrolling mindlessly, their sole message is you're not good enough. And that is how they make profit is by seeing, playing on your insecurities and seeing what you feel insecure about and using that to make you feel like you need their product. And that is one of the most damaging messages that we see around us. We need to see our bodies in a completely different perspective, no matter what shape, what size. I actually struggled with an eating disorder for a while. Um, with a larger body, it is very difficult. And I'm not talking about this because I want sympathy. I just want this so that we can look at weight in a different way and, and realize that struggling with body image and eating disorders affects everyone. Officially, I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder um, due to my BMI. Having been overweight my whole life has been really difficult. I've tried to reduce myself, not just physically, but on a whole, um, silence myself just to fit in and it hasn't worked. I've like there was a point when I was literally exercising for over two hours, um, eating a certain number of calories that wouldn't even be suitable for a toddler and then burning that off it was not sustainable whatsoever it was unhealthy but I felt like I needed to prove myself to prove that I could do it to prove that my body was good enough and that was the most toxic mindset I was ever in but at the same time that was when I received the most compliments you know oh you look so healthy you've lost a lot of weight um and that made me feel, okay, what about my previous self? Was that not to your liking? Was that not perfect enough? I mean, there's, there's no such thing as perfection anyway. You're yeah. fighting for something that isn't there. Um, and you're essentially destroying yourself. And I think in terms of binge eating and eating disorders with the NHS and, and the way we look at it, it needs to change because it doesn't affect one type of body. It can affect so many different types of bodies in so many different ways. Restricting what I was eating and obsessing over a carrot, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, because it was over my calorie intake for that day. Yeah. Is more unhealthy than eating the carrot. Yeah. <laughs> um, or eating a cupcake, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to focus on living in the moment and when you're struggling with an eating disorder and a larger body and it's a lot harder 
forget about size, forget about weight, forget about fitting into a certain dress. But I think no matter what our bodies are, no matter what size, we just need to appreciate them and respect them. For me, my eating disorder has been associated with shame quite a lot, um, especially having grown up with a different figure to most of my family and my friends you know a lot of people are like oh you've got a really big bottom and you've got really big hips and it's like well I've tried to get rid of that and it didn't work so I'm just going to embrace it and recovering was really difficult because a lot of people I mean a lot of my family don't understand what an eating disorder is and that is something I think that tends to run quite a lot in Arabic culture like if you go into someone's house they'll try and feed you and if you say no <laughs> <laughs> it's seen as offensive isn't it if yeah. you say no to people's food I have this problem as well I'm quite controlled about what I eat and I have a very small appetite anyway but I find it difficult when I go to like family members houses and they're like you have to eat you have to eat and I'm like I physically can't it's seen as offensive isn't it yeah and it makes you feel sick and yeah. you you don't listening to your body and intuitive eating which is what you learn when you're in recovery is listening to your body and realizing what it needs so it's it's embracing recovery and trying to figure out where I'm going with it and some days it's really tough you know when you're com constantly bombarded with messages of you need to change your body it doesn't fit in with what's uh, what's beautiful then you feel a certain pressure and trying to fight that fight back against that gets really tough but you have to know that ultimately this is my body it's my experience it's my way of living and it's made me see things that I never even would have imagined I think by accepting our bodies and embracing them and respecting them it's the only way to move forward Thank you so much to Marie for joining me on today's episode. I think that we had a really, really interesting and provocative discussion around beauty standards and the way that certain ideals of beauty presented to us from an early age have impacted us as young women trying to find our way in the world now. All of this discussion has got me thinking about what the ideal woman looks like in the Asian culture. I would say that the definitive Indian beauty would be someone who's got big eyes, a slim nose, slender hips, long flowing black straight hair, someone who has fair skin, and basically someone who looks like a Disney princess, which in my view is not real and it doesn't exist. I think a lot of young girls in India and maybe even here are constantly thinking about their skin. I think that they're still using skin lightening products and they're still obsessed with having fair skin. When I was younger and I used to go on holiday to India, there was an obsession with fair skin and there was an obsession with buying um, a very well-known product now called Farron Lovely. Now that's a moisturizing cream which claims that it can lighten your skin. And I guess what it has is a bleaching effect. But what I think it does is instead of lightening people's skin, I actually think it makes it worse. So I remember vividly that a lot of my family members in India would use this product on their face and I think the colour of their skin would change so it would actually look more grey than looking fairer. And so I remember if we used to look at photographs of family members, their skin colour would turn out 
looking awful. They would look ashy white, chalk. They would look like chalky, powdery white in their photographs. And this was all because they thought they would look more desirable and way more attractive because they'd used some kind of skin lightening product to enhance the way that they look and to change and alter their skin tone. When I think about it, for me personally, growing up having dark skin was quite difficult. And while my skin colour has changed as I've gotten older and I've actually become fairer, which is really, really weird. When I was younger, I did used to have quite dark skin and I used to feel really unaccepted at school. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt really ugly and I was just always really, really aware that my skin stood out, but stood out in a negative way. And that's just because I was made to believe that dark skin is undesirable and unattractive. I'd always try and blend into these friendship circles that I had, where there were a lot of other South Asian girls. I actually remember one of my best friends at school once told me that another girl in my year group didn't want to be my friend because I had dark skin. And I remember just feeling like the world had crashed around me. I felt like I was a freak in some ways and I felt like I would just go through life with people judging me based on my skin colour and not accepting me into their inner circles and not wanting to be friends with me. But as I grew older, I learned to accept the skin I was in. I learned to love myself and I learned that it's your differences that make you unique. Colorism is a huge issue in general as well, but I think even in our own Asian culture, we discriminate and we isolate and we don't accept people who are dark skinned. I think we also need to think about some of the positive role models that are really working to change the perceptions of beauty within the Asian community. One example that comes to mind is model Neelam Gill. She was the first ever British Indian face of L'Oreal UK and she has modelled for massive brands including Burberry. For me personally, Neelam Gill is very inspiring because she's spoken quite openly about some of the issues that she had around her dark skin. And she even said that she thought she wasn't beautiful because she thought that being fair was beautiful. She has said that she even used to cry when people used to say, oh my God, you look so dark when she used to return back from a holiday because being dark was acquainted with something that is negative. As well as Neelam Gill, I was really inspired by Bollywood actress Sonam Kapoor. She exposed the reality of what it takes to look good as a Bollywood star. And I think what she did is remind people that although you might see the end product on social media, and although you might see these Bollywood celebrities looking their absolute flawless self, the amount of effort that goes into it is obviously behind the scenes and it's actually painstakingly difficult to go through. Sonam Kapoor has shared the following. My eyebrows are tweezed and threaded every week. There's concealer on parts of my body that I could never have predicted would need concealing. I'm up at 6am every day and at the gym by 7.30. I exercise for 90 minutes and some evenings again before bed. It's someone's full-time job to decide what I can and cannot eat. There are more ingredients in my face packs than in my food. There's a team dedicated to finding me flattering outfits. After all that, if I'm still not flawless enough, there are generous servings of Photoshop. I've said it before and I'll keep on saying it. It takes an army, a lot of money and an incredible amount of time to make a female celebrity look the way she does when you see her. 
It isn't realistic and it isn't anything to aspire to. Aspire to confidence. Aspire to feel pretty and carefree and happy without needing to look any specific way. I'm going to leave you all with that parting message from Bollywood actress Sonam Kapoor. And with that, today's episode comes to an end. Thank you so much to Marie who joined me earlier. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in their views following episode two. I'm so sorry that I wasn't able to read them all out, but if there are people who would like to get in touch following today's episode on beauty standards, I would love to hear your views and I'll share some of them in the next episode. If you would like to suggest any topics which you think I should cover, please feel free to get in touch. Details are in my SoundCloud bio. Thank you to everyone who's listened to episode three. I'll see you in episode four. Goodbye.